When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, August 16th, changing up the schedule a little bit here on today's shows. It's still going to be a two Mini Break podcast Wednesday. I was hoping to have a guest on this show joining me to help recap all of last week's WTA action in Montreal. Unfortunately, that guest schedule just got a little bit busy, so it will be just me steering the ship again. we got to play a little bit more catch-up on Canada. Hopefully, after this podcast, all of you listeners will feel well apprised on everything that unfolded at last week's 1,000-level event. Certainly was an exciting championship Sunday. Always fun to have a doubleheader, and the matchup three sets, Ludmilla Samsonova over Elena Rabakina in the morning. That was a fun one, even if the afternoon final, Jessica Pagula dominant over Ludmilla Samsonova a little bit less so. Nevertheless, plenty of storylines unfolded over the course of the week. I want to recap my five most pertinent storylines for all of you on today's show. Try to keep today's podcast organized, but obviously the big headlines. Jessica Pagula earning this feather in the cap, taking a 1,000-level title. On today's show, I want to make the case for how she has unequivocally asserted herself as the fourth best player in the world. It's no longer an argument, in my opinion. I think it's fact, and I will make the case for so, uh, for why I think so here on today's show. I also want to talk Ludmilla Samsonova. I know it was a disappointing ending, but she's proven this now. 18 months, she's been a top 10, well, I guess 12 months, 13 months now. She's been a top 10 player on hard courts. The numbers say it, the eye tests say it. Certainly this past week in Canada said it, even if her opening round loss to Linda Noskova again, something I would chalk up as a schedule loss as much as anything else in Cincinnati. I think she's a top 10 player on hard courts. Going to make the case for why here on today's show. Of course, big picture. Any concerns coming out of the week for our three favorites, Sviantec, Sabalenka, Elena Rabakina? My answer is no. I'll explain why on today's show. We'll talk about the cool things, Jennifer Brady, Layla Fernandez, Danielle Collins, Cotton Eye Joe. Then we're going to talk about who needs a big Cincy. That's the agenda for today's podcast. Looking forward to sharing my thoughts with all of you listeners. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because so many of you continue to tune in. And if you're looking for a men's recap from Canada, check yesterday's podcast with Gil Gross. If you're looking for a recap of the boys and girls, 16s, 18s, nationals, check yesterday's podcast with the GOAT, Colette Lewis. If you're looking for challenger talk, uh, college-related talk, Go check out our Great Shot podcast feed. A shout out to Westoff, who makes it all happen. And of course, a shout out here on this podcast to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point for the best equipment, the lowest prices, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code at CR15 at checkout to let them know we sent you there. With that said, let's catch up on Canada part two. Let's talk about all the WTA action that unfolded in Montreal 
Look, tactically, there's not a lot to say in terms of Jessica Pagula's performance in the final, as much a schedule victory as much as anything else. Again, dominant she was, 6-1-6 love over Ludmilla Samsonova. She didn't lose a single point on her first serve. She was not broken, nor did she face a break point throughout the course of the match. Felt like the heavy topspin of Ludmilla Samsonova's aggressive attack just fed right into the ground strokes of Pagula, who was able to flatten everything out that much easier, who was on top of every return. She was dominant, as she should have been in that final, and taking care of business given the pressure of, hey, this is a second match after Samsonova played a two-and-a-half-hour or, what, two-hour three-setter to start the day. It was a match she should have won, and she did win. And that's been the story for Jessica Pagula now, I would say for two and a half years. But for the sake of today's exercise, I went dating back to the start of last season. This is who Jessica Pagula has been. And look, I do want to talk about the semifinal match against Iga Sviantek, even the quarterfinal match against Coco Goff. Pagula earning three set victories in each of those. We can talk about the tactics there in a moment. But just to make the argument, because... This is where I wanted to open today's show about, and I have been feeding this narrative, dare I say, as much as anyone, the emergence of a big three this season. Iga Sviantek's dominance goes without saying. Arena Sabalenka, who had been knocking on the door for so long for her to earn her first slam title in Australia, back it up by making countless finals. Indian Wells, Stuttgart, I forget if it was Madrid or Rome, I'm pretty sure it was Madrid, and deep runs at Wimbledon, deep runs at the French Open as well. You know, she's unequivocally asserted herself for Rabakina to win Wimbledon, back it up with an Australian Open final, back it up with Indian Wells' success as well. Those three had earned the benefit of the doubt, had separated themselves from the pack, particularly on hard courts or quicker surfaces over the course of the past six, seven months. I, I Just to relitigate why that narrative had emerged, I think it was pretty fair. The question of who the fourth best player in the world, though, has been an open question. And obviously, when Karolina Mukova takes a set off of Iga and makes the French Open final, she looks like the best uh, fourth best player in the world. Von Drusova winning Wimbledon, she looks like the fourth best player in the world. Krejcikova, her run through the Middle East, she looks like the fourth best player in the world. And then the really tight matches with Sabalenka and Indian Wells in Miami to back that up. And yet through all of that, staring us in the face, the fourth best player in the world has unequivocally been owned uh, on Jabra. I didn't mean to eliminate her from that conversation. Obviously, two slam finals last season, repeated success as well. Through all that, I, I do think the fourth best player in the world has been staring us in the face. And the answer to that question is Jessica Pagula. And I have the numbers to back it up. We'll start with the Pagula side of the argument. You look for Jessica Pagula now, a remarkable 84-34 and 34 overall, 71% win percentage since the start of last season. During that stretch of time, she has made 18 different quarterfinals. So she's played 34 losses. You know, not all of those are in, you know, one of those are in United Cup. So you want to eliminate that as a tour level event. One of those losses, Billie Jean King Cup. So she's played 32 tour level events. She has made 18 quarterfinals in those 32 tour level events. That is a remarkable run of success. I have done the numbers and you look at the best players historically, those players who like the Serena's, the Sharapova's, the 
obviously Hinguses and Celises and Everett's and Navratilovas, etc. You know, you're not even sniffing the conversation of one of the great all-time seasons unless you're making at least 60% or better quarterfinals of every event that you play. And in reality, you got to make about 50% of the finals, uh, finals and 50% of the events you play to really get in that elite of the elite conversation. I'm not saying that's where Pagula is, by the way. But to make 18 quarterfinals and 32 events over an 18-month stretch, that's ridiculous. And you want to know how ridiculous it is? I went and ran the numbers. Here are the comparable players, what they look like over this 18-month run. And again, Jessica Pagula, 84 and 34 overall, 71% win percentage. She's made 18 quarterfinals. And keep in mind, those quarterfinals have come Australian Open twice, Roland Garros once, U.S. Open once, Wimbledon once. So, you know, five of those eight quarterfinals have come at slams. Obviously, she's won Montreal. She's also made uh, quarterfinals in Madrid, in Miami, in Cincinnati, in Toronto last year, in Madrid, in Miami last year as well. They're all at the big events. Jessica Pagula always is in that final weekend conversation. The, the She makes the final eight at the biggest events. 18 quarterfinals, 32 events, 71% win percentage. How does that compare to the best of the best? Well, as I figured, there was only one person I was certain would have better numbers over this time span, and I was correct in that assumption in that the answer is Iga Sviantek. Iga's 117 and 17 during this stretch. That's 87% win percentage, which ridiculous. She's 22, and she's already doing this. 21 quarterfinals for Iga. She's 18 and 3 in those quarterfinals, by the way, to Pagula's 10 and 8. 18 and 3 in quarterfinals is ridiculous. Iga's the best player in the world. That's unequivocal. You turn to Sabalenka next, and you, through all the inconsistencies to her start for last season, Sabalenka 74 and 31 over the last 18 months, 70% win percentage, a little bit behind Pagula. She's also made 17 quarterfinals to Pagula's 18. She's 12 and 5 in those quarterfinals. Of course, the kicker for her, she made semifinals Roland Garros. She made semifinals Wimbledon. She wins the Australian Open earlier this year. Finals of Indian Wells. Finals of Stuttgart. Wins Madrid. She's had the better season than Pagula. But again, numbers-wise over the last 18 months, at least Pagula is in that conversation with her. I think Sabalenka is pretty clearly that number two clear cut. You go to Rabakina next. Rabakina 80 and 31 over these last 18 months, 72% win percentage. She's right there with Pagula. She's only made 12 quarterfinals, 8 and 4 overall. But again, she won Indian Wells. She won Wimbledon. She made an Australian Open final quarters this year again at Wimbledon as well wins Rome also right I think she won Rome if my memory serves correct indeed she did win Rome two Masters titles plus a slam title in the last 18 months she gets the slight edge over Jessica Pagula she's in the number three spot despite having the six less quarterfinal appearances the win percentage is the same the titles are bigger again this is my opening here this is my opening argument for why I think Pagula is now definitively fourth because you get to the rest of the list. You know, next you go to Anjabur, 17 total quarterfinals, 70 and 27. So same win percentage, one less quarterfinal. Yes, she has the two slam titles 
Uh, but what are her title? Uh, slam finals, excuse me. But her titles, she wins Madrid last year, won a title in Berlin, title in Charleston. I think Pagula is doing a little bit better. Certainly, if you were to ask 2023 season, and I know injuries have been a big part of the story, I think you give the nod to Pagula. You go next to Coco Goff. 17 total quarterfinals. She's 71 and 36, 66% win percentage overall. Again, her quarterfinals a little bit different, though. Yes, she has two Roland Garros quarterfinals in that mix, a U.S. Open quarterfinal as well. Indian Wells, Montreal, Toronto. A little bit more hardcourt-centric. She hasn't had the clay court runs, at least at Masters events, that Pagula has. Hasn't really had the grass court success either that Pagula has. And, you know, again, doesn't... Yes, she won Washington, but she doesn't have the 1,000-level title that Pagula has either. Now, I think Goff is in the conversation. I think you give the edge to Jessica Pagula. Maria Sakari next. You know, 63 win percentage, but 14 quarterfinals. Wanted to look at her. For Krechikova, I went back to the start of the 2021 season, and even then, she only has 14 quarterfinals. Mukova, Vandrusova, too injured to really compare. I think numbers-wise, I think results-wise, she now has two victories over Iga Swiatek this season, and I don't think we talk in terms of Jessica Pagula's strengths on court, how strong she is. Her ability to hold her ground, hold that baseline on the return of serve. Her hands are so strong through contact. She took the ball early, took time away from Iga, took time away uh, from Samsonova in that final. I mean, again, Samsonova wasn't moving particularly well, but it just felt like uh, Pagula was on top of everything. No, I don't think Iga played particularly well in their semifinal match or quarterfinal, whatever it was. I think it was semifinal match that went three. But Pagula, again, if you're not playing your best, Pagula is going to put enough pressure on you. She moves well. She changes direction well because she's so strong. If she gets her hands on the ball, that ball is going service line or deeper. You know, right now she's one of 11 players throwing top 25 in both hold and break percentage, and she's top five in break percentage. It's the serve that lagged a little bit behind to start the season. She's just really good at everything. There's no definitive weakness. She's confident moving forward. You need to play your best to beat Jessica Pagula. And I still do think uh, the best day of a Sabalenka, the best day of a Rabakana, the best day of an Iga is better than Pagula. But it has to be their best because, again, she just asks all the right questions. I can't remember the last time we got an off-off day from Jessica Pagula that was just totally debilitating to her performance She's the fourth best player in the world. Like the numbers say it, the results say it. You have to be elite to beat her. And, you know, again, it, it's a testament to her that she ends up in the winner's circle here in Montreal because her best was better than everyone else's best throughout the course of this event, regardless of what that circumstance was. Jessica Pagula uh, winning the title with this result, by the way, you look in the live rankings right now. She's currently sitting at third. She's jumped Rabakina. Uh, you look in the points race right now, she's fourth, but about 1,000 points clear of fifth place Vondrosova. Jessica Pagula is going to make another two or finals. Jessica Pagula is going to finish another top eight season this year, barring some sort of disaster or some sort of crazy emergence. And it's well-deserved because that's who she's been. I think she's now made quarterfinals of 16 of her last 18 events or something crazy like that. Ridiculous. 
ridiculous consistency in an era that was previously defined by anything but. And so I think Jessica Pagula is unequivocally the fourth best player in the world. That is my 12-minute opening for all of you mini-break listeners today. I do think, though, there are some players who flirt with higher upside than Pagula in one specific match. And obviously, it's tough to say that about Ludmilla Samsonova after seeing Pagula give her the business in that final. But again, I view that as a schedule loss as much as anything else. I think Samsonova has now proven she is one of the 10 best hardcore players in the world. Just look at the numbers over the last 13 months for her. She's 36 and 14 overall on hard courts during that stretch of time, 27 and 9 against opponents ranked outside the top 20, but 9 and 5 against opponents ranked inside the top 20. And that includes victories over a Sabalenka in Guadalajara. She obviously beats Sabalenka again here in Montreal. She beats, I mean, it's funny because you see Fernandez and Raducanu as top 20 players over the past year, and you're like, well, they're not anymore. But she beats Benchich at this event. She beats Rybakina at this event as well. It's how explosive her ball is. And the thing that was so impressive to me for Samsonova was how well she mixed in the drop shots over the course of this week. It felt like because every you know every opponent when you're facing a Samsonova, as you prepare to split step and respond to her aggression – you know, you're split stepping and, and preparing to move backwards. You're getting ready to chase something down, getting ready to handle the weight of her shot. And then she'll mix in that drop shot and it catches you off guard. And it's just tough to recover. It's tough to swing your hips and get up there for that ball. And that's why the drop shot is particularly effective for someone who hits as heavy as she does because her opponent's weights and, you know, anticipation are always pushing them backwards. That off-speed drop shot was the difference maker like it just was the mix up she needed to add along with the rest of her attacking package that just was the final piece that put together again a really I thought exceptional week of tennis for Ludmilla Samsonova who again not only beats Sabalenka, Benchich, Rybakina, good win over Jung Chin Wen straight sets, beat Sinyakova from a set down in round one you know you look for her now over her last two weeks here on the hard court she's what Eight and two overall. She's and her two losses are to Pagula and Goff. And that Pagula loss was the second match of a head-to-header where she had faced Rabakina the you know in the morning. And it's not as though the Washington schedule was particularly cooperative either. This is a really good start for Ludmilla Samsonova, who remember had to defend a Washington title from last year. Now by making the semis of a 500 level event, it was a 250 last year. She essentially did that. She had to defend a Cleveland 250 title. Obviously, you make the final of a 1,000-level event, as she does in Montreal. She has certainly defended those points. She's back up to her new career high of number 12. And despite going 8-8 eight and eight on the natural surfaces, clay and grass courts over the past year, despite eight and, an 8-8 eight and eight record, she's 12 in the world. What does that tell you? She's one of the 10 best players in the world on hard courts. And you just look at the success again, 36 and uh, 14 overall on the surface during this run. Title in Tokyo, title in Cleveland, title at the City Open, final Abu Dhabi, now finals Montreal, semifinals DC here this year. All really, you know, beats Krechikova, by the way, in Abu Dhabi before she goes on her Middle East run five and six. It's the pace she plays with the heaviness of her ball, 
it had Sabalenka on her back foot for the duration of that match. It felt like outside of making a first serve, Sabalenka, who showed off really impressive movement. I actually liked what I saw from Sabalenka in that three-set loss, and that'll get us to a transition here in a second. But Samsonova still managed to overwhelm her because she's comfortable moving forward. She's gotten way more fluid as a mover on hard courts at the baseline. And because she's so strong, so powerful, if she can get her racket on the ball, the point is just back at neutral. So I was... Uh, Ludmilla Samsonova is back, as I believe I tweeted last week. And Montreal was a confirmation of what we saw at the City Open. The weight of her shot is just very difficult to deal with on this surface. I think she's a top 10 player on hard courts, 9-5 and five against top 20 opponents over the past year. I think the numbers say that as well. But, you know, again... I still think the top three is pretty definitive. I don't have worries about Rabakina, about Sabalenka, about Sviantek coming out of the week. I thought Iga's – I mean, Iga cannot hold serve in the first set against Pagula. The two games she got were two breaks of serve. They traded breaks in the opening four games and four straight to Pagula. The first forehand was just str- spraying on Iga. And again, a lot of that credit has to go to Pagula, who clearly has a game plan. I'm changing direction at the first possible moment. I'm holding my ground on the return of serve. The moment I fall behind the baseline, I have lost the point. Also try to attack through the Iga forehand with pace. Again, Iga's forehand just sprayed. And that she managed to fight her way through to a third set, that she managed to win three set matches against Mukova, Collins, uh, and Collins in back-to-back rounds prior to that three-setter against Pagula, where, you know, again... I actually thought she played pretty solid against Mukova. I thought against Collins, Collins just played a remarkable second set of tennis where everything was early, everything was down the line, everything was why not swing out because if I don't do that, I'm losing. Then Iga sort of righted the ship in set number three. You know, Iga had an off day. The forehand was at its worst, I thought, and the serve in particular was just sitting up for Pagula to attack. And again, Pagula's a top five returner. You give her any sort of inch, she can attack it. It was a credit to her as much as Iga being off. But no, I'm not concerned with Iga. She got two three-set wins, got a win over Pliskova in her first match, and then lost a tight three-setter against Pagula. She's right where she needs to be for her first hardcore event, first serious hardcore event. No disrespect to the action in Warsaw, but first serious hardcore event uh, for Iga of the summer in Montreal. You know, for Sabalenka, I thought it had more to do with Samsonova playing lights out tennis. Samsonova being one of maybe three players who actually has that ability to push Sabalenka on her back foot. That was a confirmation of what Samsonova is capable of more than. Anything I think Sabalenka did particularly poorly, not that she served extraordinarily well, but, you know, again, if Samsonova is going to play that well, I think you tip your cap and you say you were too good on this day. I'm not worried about Sabalenka. I do think Cincinnati is a little bit important for her. I'd like to see court just get two, three matches under the belt, quarterfinals, semifinals. I don't think she needs to win it, but just to get this feel a little bit more confident about the serve because I watched the Martich highlights as well. The first serve was just a little bit off, or the first strike was really a little bit off uh, for Sabalenka. But again, I think it had more to do with Samsonova than anything else. And for Rabakina, I mean, to play till 3 a.m., three hours, 27 minutes against Kasatkina, that was my favorite match to watch. And boy, is Daria Kasatkina fun because she is just the contrast in style that everyone needs to face to, in my opinion, bring out their best tennis. She just forces you physically to have to exert yourself fully. And 
you know, again, she just had answers to all the heat Rabakina threw at her, kept asking the question, beat me one more time, beat me one more time, fighting off match points, ripping inside-in forehand winners down the line off a return in the thinnest of margins on a match point. It was an extraordinarily physical match. Rabakina was through. You know, again, wins the first set against Samsonova. Seemed a little off physically in sets two and three, but made a semifinal. First hardcore event back. She's right where she needs to be. You know, other cute things. I, so, so again, no, I'm not concerned about any of the big three. I think they all did what they needed to do, got their bearings under their belts. And, you know, again, it's a longer runway given how – it's not as loaded of a draw. You're not playing Samsonova's second match at the U.S. Open if you're any of these players. So, barring health issues, I'm not concerned about any of their levels. Heading into New York, in terms of the cute things from the week – you know, again, fun storylines. Great to see Jennifer Brady healthy back on court, getting a win. Brady beating Ostapenko in the most Ostapenko of scorelines possible. 7-6, love 6, 7-6. Brady then knocked out um, in her second round match. Three sets against Elena Rabakina. Her serve, her forehander have always been magnetic, and it's good to have them back in our lives uh, Goff Pagula, I mean, going head to head, the doubles partners. I th- I thought Goff played well. Like I thought she's stepping into her forehand. She's coming forward, using her speed more aggressively, and you know, backhand to backhand. Pagula wanted it was like, nope. You know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. Let's trade forehands because Coco Goff's backhand is elite, and she can turn through it so aggressively, follow it forward to the net. Usually, coming off of that backhand cross, you can guarantee yourself a first forehand volley, which she knifes off so well. She hits the overhead well. You know, again, 7-5 in the third Pagula. That match was exceptional. Um, I thought that was really fun. Obviously, to see Leila Fernandez start to have some success. Fernandez, what, through the round of 16, she gets an impressive victory over Haddad Maya in three sets. She plays a fun match, round number one against Peyton Stearns as well. Taking the ball early, beating you to the spot. Her hands are so soft and just that ability to absorb pace, turn it into a drop shot. She's another one of those contrasts in styles. Lefty. Beats you by beating you to the spot more so than overwhelming you with her pace. Not that she can't dial things up. It's it's better when Layla tennis is a better place when Layla Fernandez is playing well because she's magnetic as well. She just she's all the the positive energy she exudes on court. It's a delight as a viewer to enjoy, and so to see her in front of a home crowd as well that was really fun. I mean the Collins Sockery drama. When Danielle's taking the ball early on the rise and aggressive, she's just going to frustrate people because you just have no rhythm. There's nothing you can do. She just snaps those winners off with ease. I mean, her and Sakari start to get into it. They both are animated out on court. That's what you expect from two highly competitive athletes. I thought Collins, again, played lights out tennis. Some of the backhands she hit in that second set against Fiontech. Tennis is a better place when Collins is firing on all circuits because she just keeps you honest and keeps you on your toes. And uh, it, it's a delight to see her. And then I'm out on the Cotton Eye Joe. I had too many jokes. Like, it was a cute moment. but And it was funny that they played it after she won the tournament. But it wasn't that funny. Like, you'd think it's the first time we'd ever heard a joke before. And so it was funny. wasn't that funny. Uh, that, those are my thoughts on all the cute things uh, from Canada on the women's side. And then 
Who needs a big Cincy? That's the final question I want to ponder here before we wrap today's show. I mean, look, some results have already unfolded, so I suppose it's a little biased for some players, or this my assessment here, a little bit biased. I think Onjabur needs a big week, not like a title-winning week, but again, quarterfinals, semifinals, just to get some matches under her belt. She has finals points to defend and just any sort of confidence, and she gets that in a 7-6 in the third win over Kalanina, which I think is a great way for her to start her week. You know, plays the winner of Vekic Azarenka in the next round as well. I I would like to see Owens. I mean, we know what Owens is capable of, obviously. I just, you're that much more confident in her doing that, coming in with some confidence, coming in with a few victories under her belt. So I was going to say she was one. Caroline Garcia was another one, obviously, but the defending champ knocked out by Sloane Stevens uh, in her opening match, 6-4 in the third. I'll talk more about that on our second edition of the mini break later today. I mean, Sakari had a good DC. This is another player, quarterfinals, you know, semifinals, make, make a run here. You had the week of rest after the early exit, but of course you played DC the week prior. So she's been in good form. Another, get a couple of wins here. You feel pretty confident going into the US Open. So let's think. Sakari, Jabur, I mean, you'd say Ostapenko in theory just because you never know. Hmm. How about Potapova? Potapova's got Vondrusova today. She, she, if she wins, she'd get an opening against Stevens. Now all of a sudden you're in a quarterfinal. That's it. That's an opportunity. That's a real window for a Potapova who's obviously quarterfinals in Dean Wells, quarterfinals Miami. She was one of the 15 best hardcore players to start the season. She'll have an opportunity to be seated at the U.S. Open, but you want to do some damage. Again, confidence is going to be critical. So those will be my three. I'll go Jabur. I'll go Sakari. I'll go Potapova. As the three, I'd like to see do some serious damage. Uh, of course, if a Ostapenko gets hot, if a Junction Wen gets hot, you know, again, those power players who confidence is that much more critical. You know, Linda Nuskova already beat Samsonova, but I've been on the Nuskova bandwagon for a while. We'll talk about her in our U.S. Open Dark Horse Pods next week. Yeah, Potapova, Sakari, and Jabur. Those are my three most players to watch most closely. It, uh, at Cincinnati in terms of what to expect, uh, in terms of how it, it projects. Or I just think they need big weeks headed into the U.S. Open. Anyways, that's where we will wrap today's show. Again, we will be back later to talk about all the results, both men's and women's, we have seen thus far in Cincy. Because again, tennis world's moving. We got Western and Southern this week, Winston-Salem, Cleveland next week. Then it's the last slam of the year, the granddaddy of them all, the U.S. Open. Of course, we'll have coverage leading into it. We'll have coverage every day of it. We're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets. And why do we rock and roll? Because of the tireless efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout-out to him. A shout-out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.